0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Return to the Telepodcast, a show about shitty horror movie sequels, prequels, and reboots. I'm Bryce Patterson, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kevin Serrano-Chevarria. Hello. Hey, Kevin. Hi. How you doing? Oh, you know, I'm vibing. How you doing? Yeah, you know, I'm uh, I'm hanging in there. It's funny, I'm just so used to, like, I get to the end of that, like, little piece, and you're always like, hey-oh, that, that that moment of silence kind of threw me off.
1: <laughs> Uh a little bit more low key today I guess. Uh I mean it's 4 p.m. which is like my noon. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I got up from a nap maybe like
0: 20 minutes ago and was like, "Oh, I got to I got to put together a thing so we don't fall apart
1: on air." I mean, it's uh it's like a train wreck. It's just kind of like a spectacle for everyone to see. I like being a spectacle, so I don't mind.
0: You know, I hope so. I um I hope we're not just I don't know now's not the time <laughs> I don't want to reflect on my place in the universe. It's always time for that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, if this is your first time joining us, basically here's uh here's our deal. Uh, every episode of this show focuses on an iconic horror movie that had a dumpster fire of a sequel, um or a shitty prequel, a shitty reboot any kind of re retake or reimagining on the original material so kevin and i will look at the kind of i I guess what we see is the non-negotiable elements that made the original film so great and then how the sequel prequel reboot what have you uh falls short and then at the end of each episode we pitch each other ideas for you know different directions that they could have taken the original story so this week we're talking about David Cronenberg's 1986 remake of The Fly, and its 1989 sequel, The Fly Two. Yep. Yeah, and and you know, in this episode, I so I there's a special place in my heart for the 1958 original version of The Fly, um, but I think the the Cronenberg remake is I mean, it's kind of a masterclass, I think, in it's how so to good. take source material, um, yeah, and 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 bring it in a new direction. So I think maybe we'll touch on the original a little bit. But uh, mostly we'll focus on the 1989 sequel. And fun fact, listeners, that's actually where the title of this show comes from. Um, Because I I remember kind of when I first realized that there was a sequel to the Cronenberg film, just being kind of baffled that that anybody would would set out to, you know, try and continue on a story that had such so much kind of finality to it. Yeah, Um,
1: it's very self-contained. But like, I mean halloween or not halloween uh texas chainsaw was pretty self-contained as well and that had a sequel somehow very true very true
0: but i I think on some level at least you know both halloween and texas chainsaw right there's some degree that the killer's still out there you know and that's very much not the
1: case with the fly that's true i mean there is no killer in the fly the killer is the fly, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> the killer was inside you all along. The killer was you all along. Maybe the real fly was the killer all along. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um you know, what it, what occurred to me is um as as we've been recording, we've yet to actually
1: give like a spoiler warning at the beginning of any of these episodes. Oh, yeah, um, spoiler if you haven't seen the fly or the fly two. Um if you haven't seen the fly two though, you you are not missing you're not missing much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, The Fly, the 1986
0: version of The Fly, is on Amazon Prime at Mm -hmm. time of recording, which is February 2022. So, you know, if you haven't watched it, watch it first. It's
1: amazing. Yes. Yeah. The Fly 2 was impossible to find, which after watching it, I can very much see why. I would also not want to host it on my streaming service if I had one.
0: Yeah, no, it is absolutely for the best that it has been lost (laughs) to the dustbin of history. Um, so, so yeah, so with
1: that,
0: yeah, 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 with that spoiler, uh, spoiler warning in mind, uh, I'm going to give just a really quick uh, summary of the 1986 film. Scientist Seth Brundle, Jeff Goldblum, is working to create the first ever teleportation device and asks journalist Ronnie Quaife, uh, played by Gina Davis, to document the process. The two become lovers, but Ronnie is still being pursued by her possessive ex-boyfriend and editor Stathis. Brundle goes through the telepot himself in a drunken, jealous rage, accidentally splicing his genes with a housefly. After a brief high where he believes that he's somewhat, somehow superhuman since teleporting, Seth begins a slow process of mental and physical deterioration. Meanwhile, Ronnie realizes that she's pregnant with Brundle's child. She goes to an abortion clinic with Stathis, but is kidnapped by Brundle, who wants to fuse his genetics with her and the child's to create a perfect family. Stathis pursues them, is horribly injured, Brundle gets fused with the telepod and
1: silently begs for death, uh, and at the end, Gina Davis does shoot him in the face. I didn't realize her last name was Quayf. That's such a weird last name. I love it.
0: Yeah, that I had to find on, on Wikipedia because I didn't even realize she
1: had a last name in the film. I don't know if it's ever used. I don't think it was. I just refer to her as like Gina Davis or like Ronnie, but like mostly Gina Davis. That's that's the only way I can see her. Yeah, mostly, mostly Gina Davis. Mostly just Gina Davis. She is her own character. Yeah. Well, uh, so Kevin, what's, what's your history with The Fly? So I saw The Fly, I think, when I was like 16 or so. But I think I just watched it as I did like any weird 16-year-old would do at their parents' house in like, the middle of the night like all the lights off. And that was a really, really good environment, I think, for watching The Fly. And after I just watched, after I watched that, I just loved it. I'm just a really, really big fan of uh, David Cronenberg in general. Uh, And body horror is probably one of my favorite kinds of horror as well. I just loved it. The second uh, I finished watching it, I was like, this is amazing. So yeah, needless to say, I very much like The Fly a lot.
0: Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. I always think it's funny when I say that I love body horror uh, to people who aren't big horror fans cuz I feel like right. it's such like a red flag as a person kind of. I
1: like watching people's bodies be like dismembered. It's pretty fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I um my parents are actually big
0: I wouldn't say they're huge film buffs necessarily, but my dad loves like old like 50s uh B movie sci-fi and my mom loves old school horror like the old like, Universal Monster Pictures. Would um, this be a B movie? It's more of a fly movie. I oh. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, I don't I, I don't want to admit how long my like, hesitation there yeah so I uh, actually had seen the the 1958 version when I was a kid um which has uh Vincent Price in it and there's this (laughs) the whole kind of thing is like what's dad working on in the basement um and then it turns out he swapped like his head and one of his arms with a a fly but I'd seen that and then when I was in college um my senior year I think my my girlfriend at the time had to watch the Cronenberg version for a class and I remember I kind of without thinking of it just got really stoned while we were watching the movies like over the course (laughs) of it I was getting more and more high and the first time that uh we see Seth Brundle on his he has these two little canes that he kind of stumbles out on and I remember that just like shocked me to my core my poor like baked little college kid brain could not <laughs> handle,
1: um, that, that single moment. And it still sticks in my brain. Yeah. I'm amazed that you saw it while you were high. Like for the first time, it's not a very good movie to see when you're any kind of intoxicated. I imagine it would just like fuck with you on a very deep and spiritual level.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. Cause I mean, I loved it then. I love mm-hmm. it now. I've seen it several times at this point. Um, and I just think that it's, it's a movie that hits on so many levels. And I, I think we'll kind of get into, you know, that it, it's an incredible love story. It's a just devastating tragedy. Um, and I think being high on some level, you know, I think sometimes your inhibitions to a story are, are lower. You're a little bit more easily uh, caught up by it or can be sometimes. Mm-hmm and so i think i was just so swept up in like the humor and the romance and then just devastated by the tragedy you know it just it hit me on every level and and still every time i rewatch it i like want to cry at the end cuz i just think it's such like a i just, yeah i just think it's a, a beautiful story
1: story of a a woman and a fly it's literally just the bee movie except instead of a bee it's a fly <laughs>
0: i'll uh, i'll have to watch the b movie um please do and comment we can do we should do that that's a good horror movie <laughs> yeah yeah it'd be a good episode we can do that one in cats 2019 oh god um yeah so so obviously we both adore this movie we both love oh, yeah. david cronenberg so do you like what is it do you think that that makes the the 1986 version such a classic
1: Quite honestly, a lot of it comes down to, like, how amazing of an actor Jeff Goldblum is. Ugh, like, he yes. portrays, like, eccentric, kind of, like, creepy-ish, but still lovable, like, Brundle super well. And I feel like that's just because, like, that's who Jeff Goldblum is. Like, if I were to describe him, it would be, like, lovable, a little bit creepy, but still lovable and eccentric.
0: Yeah, no, he has so much charm. And actually, I know that was one of the big things when Cronenberg was working on the film Mm -hmm. was that he wanted Seth uh, Brundle to be able to speak uh, as long as possible throughout the film. And that was really uh, fundamental to his vision of it. And I think it really does. I mean, it's a huge change in the in the Mm -hmm. 58 version, the the fly character loses his ability to speak pretty much the moment that there is that transformation. Right. And I think it's so much of what gives this movie, like it's, it's really unique character is, is that character. Right. Um, and the way that he and Gina Davis are able to play off each other. Right. All the way through his kind of coming apart.
1: Yeah. And it's like when he becomes a fly, he, I love how he doesn't like realize that it's like a bad thing initially. Yeah. Like he's very much caught up in this, like, this is awesome. I'm part fly now. I'm fly man. This is amazing. I'm going to be the first half insect president or whatever. And like, I love that because it makes his like downfall so much more impactful.
0: Yeah. When I think Brundle goes through an arc his his emotional arc or his character arc is so beautifully tied to the narrative, you know, that he starts out as somebody who is deeply kind of like ignorant of the flesh. He has very few interactions with other people. He has this kind of, he's, he's, he's disconnected from the world around him on some level, even though he seems generally kind of content. Right. Right. Um, And then he's sort of, in a way, I think introduced to his own id. So we see he has this kind of like insatiable sexual appetite that kind of um there's <laughs> not the line from Gina Davis It's like, I'm <laughs>
1: amazed, you have any
0: fluids left.
1: <laughs> so many fluids. So many, many fluids that in this. The film movie. had a lot of fluids. The second one also had way too many fluids. Way too many fluids. Way too many yeah. fluids, too much. Yeah, yeah.
0: But then, you know, I think you can read the whole film as kind of this struggle between I guess the id, the ego, and, and the super ego that mm-hmm. Brundle is essentially consumed by the id. And and I think that that plays really beautifully with the whole, just the the, the whole film. And, and again, um, to talk about briefly the 1958 version, it, it feels much more like it's kind of touching on, you know, there are areas uh, in the 1958 version, this idea of like, you know, there are things science shouldn't do or that it's right. much more of like a, Icarus story i guess um whereas in this version you know it's not because he's trying to do science that he's damned right right? he's he's damned by his own human failings and his inability to regulate these different things inside of himself
1: yeah i mean it'd be kind of weird to have a a film where like the main message is maybe humans should not teleport maybe we're not ready for that yet
0: You know, and unless my memory is flawed, I think that is the moral of the story in the 1958 version, or at least one of the kind of themes of the story. I
1: mean, it was 1958. They were afraid of, like, microwaves. I don't really trust their perception with much of anything. Yeah, well, to be fair, right, then we're talking
0: about, like, kind of earlier Cold War, and Mm -hmm. we're still in very close living memory of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and stuff. You know, I think that they're maybe the 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 more the fear of science was mm-hmm. much more justified at that point.
1: Yeah. And like speaking of like I guess allegory or metaphor what it's supposed to be, I very much saw like the fly the nineteen eighty eighty seven, right? Eighty seven version? Uh, eighty six. Eighty six, right. I very much saw the eighty six version of the fly as like this weird allegory both towards like the war on drugs and also abortion. <laughs> Which, like, for, like, the 80s, those are, like, really big, huge, like, things happening at that time. Like, it's very clear that, like, when Brundle is, like, becoming this fly thing, when he's losing his inhibitions, when he's becoming this, like, more powerful, strong being and not really seeing the fact that his, like, whole body is just, like, destroying itself, it's very much a very clear allegory for, like, a meth addiction or something like that. It makes you feel really good but you're actually just destroying your body and you don't realize it until it's too late. And then, like, Gina Davis just has this whole subplot where she's just, like, insisting on getting an abortion. And, like, the dude that she's with and her doctor try their best to, like, convince her to not do it. But it's like, she's giving birth to this, like, deformed maggot baby thing that should not exist. Please let Gina Davis have an abortion.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, on on, on both counts. I mean, there's uh, the scene where... Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis are at a coffee shop and Goldblum just keeps pouring more and more sugar into his coffee and he's talking at a million miles a minute and he just sounds like he's coked off his ass right oh yeah absolutely yeah well I think that speaks to another thing that really I both just that I love about the film and something that I would say is fundamental to to creating any kind of a sequel which is that the fly works even if you take out the horror element or the sci-fi elements, Mm -hmm. right? That I think Cronenberg himself has said that the film was in part inspired by his own process of aging and kind of feeling like his own body was starting to come out, come apart over time. Mm -hmm. Um, But you could tell the same story about two people falling in love and one of them contracts a debilitating illness, right? People have, there've there been connections drawn between this film and the AIDS pandemic at the time. Yeah. And, and so, so I think fundamentally part of what makes the story so incredible is that it could just be a tragedy of the sort of like kitchen sink day-to-day life things that we deal with. It just becomes way more imaginative and wild when you bring in the horror and the
1: sci-fi. Yeah. And it's like the horror and the sci-fi are really only there. I mean, the sci-fi is there throughout, but like the horror is really only there like towards the end of the film. Like before that, it's just like a, like you said, like a kitchen sink drama with sci-fi elements. Like we don't get the horror until we like see the entirety of like Brundlefly's horrific transformation, which is really just like the last twenty minutes of the film.
0: Yeah, well, and and I think it speaks to like, I think this film like lives or dies on the relationships that it that it's built, right? And so both Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum, I think, you know, they have. Amazing chemistry. And I believe they actually were dating um at the time. But it's it's very much uh, you know, about their relationship, kind of the rise and fall of it. Mm-hmm. And I think about um the relationship with Stathis, the, you know, horrible bag of dicks
1: ex-boyfriend. Um Yeah, he really was a jerk, but he got like he lost two limbs out of it. So I feel like he just he kind of got his comeuppance.
0: Yeah, he's well. He's kind of fascinating because he does almost become—I don't know if I would say a heroic character at the end. Right. Um, but he does have this really interesting kind of shift, and I—I'm never quite sure what to
1: do with that. I feel like he represents very much like the standard or the, the what a person is supposed to be, and like we don't like standards, we don't like like status quo, but like, I mean the status quo destroys people. So he's literally just like destroying Jeff Goldblum or whatever.
0: Yeah. He is. I mean, maybe like a really particular kind of like
1: generic asshole white guy. I mean, in yeah. The Story. Yeah. I mean, he's really creepy towards Gina Davis the entire time. Um, very uncomfortable.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I think too, there, there's a really interesting, so there's, there's a line that has always really stuck out to me with this film. Mm. Where, um, and I actually quoted it in my summary, that, you know, uh, Brundle kidnaps Ronnie from the abortion clinic mm. and he's trying to, you know, fuse their genetics. And he says, you know, he wants to create the perfect family. Mm. And I think that family idea is so interesting to me. And they butcher it in in the sequel, you know, where it, it, it,
1: it does not work. No, not at all. I mean like, like it is interesting to like think of like the perfect nuclear family really should just act as like a single unit and like how unhealthy that actually is in retrospect.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting cuz I I think there's this desire for for a kind of 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 unity or like he sees it as this way to reconnect this this fractured relationship mm-hmm. but Obviously, um, you know, uh, uh, fusing at a genetic level is not the way to fix your broken relationship, ladies and gentlemen.
1: And it is is very much like an excuse. A lot of like men uh, who have um, partners who want abortions, like say, like, I want to have like a family with you. Like, please don't abort our child. I want to have like this unity with us and to keep us together and things like that. The entire time, just like Gina Davis is like completely horrified by the idea of it, rightfully so. But it really does show like how Brundle takes on like this weird patriarchal like desire to reproduce, and kind of how horrifying that actually is. Yeah, I mean, it's very much a story of
0: kind of possessive men fighting over Gina Davis in a way, right? Pretty much, even the the first time that uh brundle goes through the telepod it's because he thinks that she's getting back together with uh stathis
1: mm-hmm.
0: and he's you know in a a, a drunken kind of jealous moment a uh, moment of weakness right but right. it's it's when those insecurities take over and when that possessiveness takes over mm-hmm. maybe you might even say like when the id takes over completely in that moment right that's where he's that's where he's damned for the rest of the
1: narrative right yeah, I'm just very glad Gina Davis ended up doing Thumb on Louise, I think, like after this film. <laughs> it's, what she, yeah. it's what she very much deserves, just like a film without any men at all. And just like hanging out with your girlfriend. I just
0: think Gina Davis deserves the world. She does. Um,
1: I love her. Gina, if you're listening to this, which I don't think you are, we love you. Yeah. Gina, if you're out there. <laughs> Gina, if you're out there. <laughs> I think it's
0: Valentine's Day tomorrow. Um, oh, shit, it is. Yeah. Gina, will Gina. you be my Valentine? <laughs> no, be my Valentine. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. So I, I feel like that's a, that's a good kind of starting point, right? It's a film about right. relationships. It's a film that's very deeply grounded in sort of a lived human reality that we mm. can relate to and experience as our own, um, which is heightened by its kind of speculative elements. but But the narrative isn't defined by those.
1: So The Fly to it starts with the birth of um, Martin Brundle, who is um, Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum's child <laughs> in this film. Even though she was uh, meant to have an abortion, and she very much clearly wanted to have an abortion in the first film, we're just ignoring that uh, major subplot. Yeah. So he's born. Um, he's born out of this like weird cocoon thing. That's like I guess sure, why not? even though like flies are born out of eggs, but whatever it's human fly thing. Uh, and then just like doctors like cut them out of that thing and it's just like a regular old like flesh and blood human being comes out. Gina Davis dies giving child uh, giving birth as well uh, so we don't see her at all. Also the actress who is supposed to play Gina Davis's character looks absolutely nothing like her. So I'm kind of fine with just not having her there to begin with but we see Martin grow up he's apparently like a super genius he also grows up incredibly fast because fly genetics or whatever so like we mostly follow him when he's like 5 years old chronologically he's 5 but like biologically he looks like he's in his early 20s even though like apparently he hasn't started puberty yet it's very confusing um So after that happens, he falls in love with this chick who just, like, kind of works there. Uh, Oh, I forgot about the dog. (laughs) Don't forget the dog. I can't forget the dog. Uh, While while Martin is still a child, I guess, even though he's kind of a child throughout the entire thing, um, he has a dog, and, like, the facility that he's being housed in to be studied is still, like, performing um, Brundle's, like, teleportation experiments so they're trying to transport his dog from like one telepod to another one and then they they fuck it up and somehow the dog just like ends up being this like rabid inside out but still a live creature that just attacks a person and takes off two of their fingers uh, and it traumatizes martin a lot rightfully so but after that we just kind of ignore that for a little bit uh he finds this chick who he really likes who works there um they get together try to do experiments science things uh until martin finds out that the dog is still alive and that she was working on weird some sort of scientific experiments with the dog it's never really specified what they're doing but he gets upset with her for like five seconds and they get over it um eventually Martin gets up getting his own place, which is bugged. Of course it's bugged. Why wouldn't it be after that? What happens after that? Yeah. I don't remember what happens after that.
0: Yeah. So, so there's, there's the, the romance
1: and then, Oh yeah. They have sex, which is so fucking weird. Yeah. Cause like, he's five, five, he's five in like a third bug. Like that's like bestiality and pedophilia at the same time.
0: Yeah. Also, um, just to briefly quickly add something to our fundamental Elements, right? I think sexuality is really important in the original film, right. and I think that is kind of a callback to again, it's all about like the flesh, the Cronenberg flesh yeah. thing. But yeah, they 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 bone down, and then she oh, gets sent away. Beth, I think, is her yeah, name, right? Beth, um, that's
1: right. Yeah, she gets sent away because like they see them boning, and like they're like, no, you can't do this. And then I think like shortly after that they get in contact with each other uh she tells him that the place is bugged he like completely just destroys the entire place except for the one place where like it very clearly looks like there's a camera hidden there it's like the yeah, last, he's smashing up like his kitchen his whole kitchen just everything the last place he looks is the obvious place where there would be a camera um, then he breaks back into like the facility he attacks some people is metamorphosis begins because apparently his puberty is starting or whatever. And he turns into like this monster thing that doesn't look anything like a fly. But then it just turns into like a weird like monster movie slasher for the last like like, half hour where he's just like killing all these people. He pets a dog because apparently he likes dogs. Yeah, even as like a monster giant fly (laughs) runaway
0: beast thing, he still loves dogs.
1: Yeah, he just pets like a Rottweiler. He's like, hi doggy. And then Hi, this, <laughs> hey, You're my favorite <laughs> customer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he just, like, murders people with this cool little, like, fly spit, whatever. Uh, so it just becomes a slasher for a long time. Um, by the end of it, he puts... Oh, he figures out that the only way he can get cured of his weird fly disease is if he, like, transfers his fly genes to somebody else. So he takes, like the dude who's running, been running the facility and was like his father figure, kind of, he puts him in the telepod with him, and then they, like, switch their genes or whatever. So that guy ends up being, like, a the weird monster hybrid human fly thing. And then uh, Martin's just a person again for some reason. And then, like, that's it. Like, they just studied that weird fucking dude. Like, they studied the dog.
0: So so Martin Brundle, could we for the rest of this conversation call him uh Marty McFly? Yes, we can.
1: <laughs> Sorry, I, <laughs> I thought that was very clever. <laughs> it was it was not, but he does look a lot like Marty McFly. He looks absolutely nothing like either Gina Davis nor Jeff Goldblum. But yeah, he looks not at all. He looks he very much does look like Marty McFly.
0: Yeah, the uh the romance between Martin and Beth is this weird
1: most of it just happens in like a montage, so we never really see like what do they talk about? They have a science montage where they're just doing science things together and presumably they fall in love. Yeah, we we, we assume, we imagine. Also he bucks uh, up her cactus. I almost forgot about that too. Puts yeah, he puts her, in her telepod, cactus in the telepod. And it fucks it up, and she's just like, oh well.
0: Yeah. Also, I feel like we should note that she is fly fishing alone in a science lab in the middle of the night when they meet. It's very on the nose. I mean, she catches
1: a fly. So, I mean, she kind of fly fishes. Yeah, it's painfully on the
0: nose. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, I mean, I think like the first like just major thing that we like have to talk about with it is just like. Whereas the the original film feels like it's too, I guess it's it's really the original film is really a cast of three, I guess. Pretty much. Um, yeah. I Randall, think
1: there's literally only like four characters in it, and maybe like one or two extras. That's really it.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's very uh, small. It feels almost closer to a, a stage play in mm-hmm. in some ways to me. Um, but it feels like these very ordinary people living ordinary lives, and it's a really. Surreal shift going directly from that into watching the second film, right? Where we have this kid genius who doesn't sleep and ages at, you know, some absurdly fast rate, right? Living in an evil corporate lab.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think the thing that stuck with me the most is the fact that there's just like so many characters. Like, yeah. It was at some point really hard to follow. And I was just like, why can't you just like condense a lot of these characters that have extremely similar roles into like one? <laughs> like, do we really need like five lab technicians?
0: Yeah, we don't really get to know Martin as a character all that much, oh and God, no, not at all. Similarly, with with Beth, the love interest, like, I don't know, I don't get her just like as a person. Um, he
1: has like. Zero characterization. Like her character is just girlfriend of Martin Brundle. That's really it. Also, she likes cactuses and lives on a houseboat. That's really it.
0: Oh yeah, she does live on a houseboat. Yeah, does, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I, I think you know similarly.
1: Like whereas the
0: the eventual kind of doom in the nineteen eighty six fly is very much a, you know it's 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 an outpouring of the the character's failures. I don't really know what Martin's arc is as a character, right? Or, or what he, how he changes or like the events of the film don't feel like they're driven by Martin. It's just kind of things gradually happen and he kind of is just baffled and following along.
1: I mean, his arc is really just like, he's this monster who's like contained in a child. And, like, he tries to prove that he's not a monster, but he ends up being a monster in the end anyway. But then he turns back into a totally normal yeah. human. So it, just, it just kind of negates everything. It's very much like an anti-horror film in that, like, all of the stakes kind of just go away by the end of it. Except for, like, the killing. I mean, I guess that's horrifying, but...
0: Yeah. Though no, it's interesting, right? It doesn't feel like a horror film for... Yeah probably the first hour of its runtime. It's only really when it turns into kind of like a slasher monster movie for the last 30 minutes that it even really touches on, on the horror genre. Cause he's not gross or grotesque until the last like 30, 40 minutes where he suddenly starts
1: changing really fast. Right. Very much just a weird teenage sci-fi romance for a while. And there's a weird dog.
0: Yeah, well, I feel like it needs to be said that, like, the most meaningful connection in the film is definitely between Martin and the dog. It's not between Martin and and Beth, right? Like, the the romantic connection in the movie is totally flat.
1: It's very much about a half-boy, half-fly, and his dog. Yeah. I mean, by the end of it, it's half-boy, half-man, half-fly. All Brundle. All
0: Brundle. 20% skill. 30% (laughs) fly. 40% (laughs) telepod.
1: 40% 40% telepod, truly the most moral of all beings. 100% concentrated power of will. will.
0: <laughs> so yeah, let's, uh, let's talk pitches. Um, and I, I think maybe a good starting point is we we all had this reaction. Our friend Alexis watched the movie with us last night. Uh, shout out to Alexis. Hey. Be our Valentine if Gina Davis turns us down, Gina. but also if she doesn't turn us down. Um, <laughs> so we 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 finished the 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 first film, and uh, as we were starting the second, I think the 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 consensus we all had was that like. Gina Davis has to have the abortion after the first film, you know, to ignore that is to just utterly flatten her character. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's actually why she refused to be in the second film was when she realized that her character was going to die in the first few minutes and have no meaningful arc or role or, you know, you know, I I, I think it's a, a fundamental misunderstanding of the character for her to not have an abortion. I
1: mean, like, you know, logically it's really strange for her to be like, insisting on having this abortion like throughout most of the first film and then just like in the start of the second film she says like never mind i'm good i want to have this weird deformed baby i'm cool with it now i didn't just have like a weird traumatic nightmare about it or whatever
0: yeah 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 so i think we're gonna our starting point gina davis has the abortion yes, um, absolutely. i think there's no way around that so uh Kevin, do you want to start us off? What like ideas did
1: you have as far as different stories that could be told? I mean, it would have to like not be obviously like Martin Brundle. He would couldn't be like the central character of the story. I'm thinking that like a corporation being a part of it would definitely make sense. I mean, like people would know about the telepod, uh, and people would try to capitalize off of it. Um Probably, like, the same thing would happen again. Uh, that happened to, like, Seth Brundle. Someone would just, like, go in uh, with some sort of, if they wanted to do a fly again, why not? But, like, be creative. I don't know, do the beetle or something. They would go in with, like, some organism that they weren't meant to go in with, and they'd get, like, mixed up with it. And then it would just turn into, like, kind of a similar similar thing. Like, you get uh, that, that person slowly just becomes a monster that just, like, murders people. I feel like that's the most logical um, kind of progression. Uh, It could very much be, like, a commentary on, like, how people are stupid and need to stop capitalizing on things, and, like, when they're making scientific progresses, like, make sure they got their shit, like, down. Really, that's the only way I can see, like, a sequel being made. Because, like, as you said before, like, the first one's very self-contained. Like, it doesn't really it can't really go anywhere with these characters anymore. Like you have to have a new set of characters in order to make a sequel.
0: Yeah, no, I I had kind of a similar feeling that just, I think the, the plot arcs feel incredibly resolved for the, or I guess the emotional arcs for these characters feel incredibly resolved. Right. I I had a couple of, of different thoughts. I think the, the family element or that line about family from the first movie mm-hmm. has really stuck with me. So one one idea that I had was um, a couple that's struggling to conceive uh, a child applies for an artificial insemination program through Bartok Industries, um, mm-hmm. which is the the evil corporation that's yeah. referenced briefly in the first film and kind of takes the forefront in the second. And unknowingly, the genetic material that they receive is synthesized from Brundle's DNA. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And so then I kind of see it as, you know, a child is born and things start to get weird. And then, you know, I would imagine the film honing in really closely on this family unit that doesn't realize that they're under really close, you know, corporate uh, observation Mm -hmm. as they're kind of, you know, they have this miracle child, but then the miracle starts to go awry.
1: Right. That'd be interesting, yeah it'd be kind of like the orphan if you've ever seen that except like instead of it being like this uh forty year old Russian lady who's pretending to be a child it's like this <laughs> this child who's just like inherently a monster
0: yeah yeah when I, I'm really interested in the parents right you know I think something that we've talked about in our writing workshop recently is this idea of kind of in the story, you know, characters getting what they want or what they always dreamed of and then it really not being what they thought it would be. Right. And I think there's something really fascinating. And I I think, again, it plays on the body horror too of, you know, carrying this child inside of you um, and feeling connected or or, or fused to it on some level at the same time as it turns out to be something very different.
1: So what you're saying is that you want to make Rosemary's baby, but with a fly instead of Satan's spawn.
0: Yeah, it's kind of somewhere between like <laughs> Rosemary's Baby and like The Omen, like kind of blended yeah. into The Fly, um, and then we do get the first insect president.
1: Yes, it's half uh, Satan, half demon, half fly, all, all Brundle, Brundle. <laughs> all Brundle, all Brundle. Yeah, one
0: one idea that I did have. I guess this this does kind of uh, potentially negate the the abortion. But if we assume that a fly baby would germinate much faster than a human child, mm. then, and this, this I think, comes from Alexis watching the film with us, or so, vaguely, or based somewhat on something that she'd said, mm. but Ronnie giving birth to triplets because the the fly children germinate so quickly. And then in that case, I think putting them, uh, they're, they're put up for adoption and are adopted by a family that's always wanted children. It's still, I'm, I'm still, I'm very locked into that image of the family mm-hmm. but maybe it's a question of whether you know the the mother figure actually gives birth to that child or they adopt these three creep maybe normal seeping but otherwise fundamentally like deeply creepily children
1: there is like a long history of there being like horror movies surrounded around children that are adopted so like i don't know what that says about society but it's probably not anything good
0: yeah you know there is so in the, in the 60s, I think it's kind of maybe starts in the late 60s uh, through a good chunk of the 70s. Um, there's a whole field of, of, of thought about horror. I think it's called pedophobia. Um, so the, the fear of children.
1: Mm-hmm. And the right it's like, fear, honestly.
0: Yeah, right. right. Um, But it's this idea that, uh, you know, you have this new generation coming up in the counterculture that seems so radically different from the from the parents generation. And so there's this fear of kind of the unknown and like what's wrong with our children, like what's going on with uh, with this new generation. And so that's where you get Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, Mm -hmm. The Omen, you know, there's this boom of kind of child horror in that era. And so there's there's something there, right? Or I guess there is right. a, a heritage or a pedigree to that that form of horror.
1: Yeah. I agree, like there's a lot of like horrific things, not just about like children themselves, um, which like especially with body horror makes a lot of sense. They're, like these changing things that are just like constantly just getting bigger and just like consuming everything you have, but like just about the differences that you had in like your own childhood, which you see as like normal development and like what people have to do now like especially like nowadays like if these sort of movies were like made like right around the time that like social media and smartphones and the internet really became a big thing I feel like they would have been very very popular for similar reasons
0: yeah yeah when I I think there's something about the kind of the connection between a mother and a child which also you know has a huge history in in horror you know I'm thinking about um Psycho and the, the Norman Bates kind of mother complex. Mm-hmm. But that sort of, or like the the kind of horrific mother being another really common horror trope. Right. But I, I think there's something about that kind of, um, and maybe it's just me speaking as like a dude, but the idea of carrying another human being inside of your body that is essentially a yes. parasite feeding off of all the things yeah. that come into you. I mean, you that's know, like
1: literally what most of Sylvia Plath's poetry is about. It's like this, like having this creature in you that's like literally feeding off of like your nutrients and your body and everything until you have to like expel it and it destroys you the the entire process. It's kind of horrifying.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like, like birth itself is a a body horror thing on some level. Um, I have a a friend who is a doula who um, is going to hate that line. (laughs) (laughs) So hopefully she never listens. But there is there is something about this kind of like foreign presence being inside of you. And it's even, you know, in the 1986 film, there's the repeating line where uh, Gina Davis says, you know, I don't want it in my body. I don't want it in my body. That is so haunting to me on yeah. some level, because I, I think and I think it, it goes back through the heritage of Cronenberg's films of these uh, films about parasites or about things that are kind of internal coming out
1: hmm yeah, absolutely. as much as I love that genre a lot, I'm very much disturbed by the fact that like no one's ever thought to just like drop kick the baby like, <laughs> <laughs> like you don't have to like deal with Satan's spawn. You can just like punt that thing and it'll be dead. Like children are very fragile, thank God. Yeah, well, and Damien is like a
0: <laughs> punk ass kid, right. Um, he's always been my least favorite part of the omen. Yeah, just, like, punt him. Who cares?
1: Fuck that guy. Fuck them kids.
0: You know, I had um, one more pitch. Okay. So, it, so it's, again, taking the the stem cells from the aborted fetus, mm-hmm. and they're used in a, ca- a cancer patient's treatment, mm-hmm. and so it enormously accelerates their healing process, but then, right, we see the transformation from there.
1: Yeah, it is, that's pretty interesting, because, like, Besides birth, which is, like, probably the original body horror, like, having, like, these illnesses that, like, can include deformities like cancer is, like, the closest thing that people who can't give birth, like, experience as, like, body horror in and of themselves. Like, it's literally, like, parts of your body just, like, mutating and creating things out of control that are killing you and you can't stop it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think it speaks to that foreign alien presence inside that is such a such a Cronenberg thing. Right. Um, you know, off the top of my head, I actually can't think of any of his films that deal with cancer, but give me like an hour and I'll be like, oh, yeah, like five of them. Exactly. Um, but but yeah, I, I think there's something about the 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 growth of cancer as a foreign entity Um and even in in the eighty six version of the fly, you know, Brundle talks about like the disease wants something; it, right. it it has some kind of a desire, and I think that feels very cancerous to me oh, yeah. in a way. Absolutely,
1: and it's like the cancer isn't even like a foreign being; it is literally you. So it's like this yeah. monstrous like thing that just inherently lives inside of you that just, like, at some point just, like, rose out. It's very much, like, what the second movie was trying to do with Martin Brundle, except it made absolutely no sense in that movie.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, it, it, it does beg the question. I mean, so, so at the end of the second movie, right, Martin Brundle drags his kind of evil father figure into the telepod with him.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But the father figure is fully clothed, right? Yeah. So we were talking about, like, is are they just going to fuse with the suit? Like, are they going to wear the same suit for the rest of their lives?
1: Half man, half boy, half half fly, half power suit, half CEO, half Half Rolex, half Rolex, (laughs) All Brundle. Mm -hmm. Honestly, though, like thinking about like conceptually, like if we're getting into the real nitty gritty, like things like you have organisms in and outside of your body that aren't you. Like why don't doesn't that make you like, I don't know, part eyelash mite or like part gut bacteria or something like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like don't use the telepod if you have lice.
1: Pretty much, yeah. You don't want to be
0: the lice, the louse. The louse. The louse. Well and actually that does ask some interesting questions, right? Because if we're thinking about the the microorganisms in your body, if you're gradually fusing with them more and more. Then the more times you go through the telepod, the more you're going to start to to physically change. Right. Um. So in theory, you could have, you know, repeated testing of the telepod in this government or I guess corporate facility over time, and have multiple people who start to have this shift. And right.
1: yeah, then rather rather than the fly, it's the the eyelash mite or whatever the eyelash mite. All it wants is to dig inside the ground and just like suck up nutrients
0: yeah well that that actually i mean at least to me raises the question of you know the 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 first film was very much about a single person goes through the telepod and comes out changed hmm. what happens if we have these multiple people going through transformations kind of concurrently and that's that's pretty hmm. fascinating
1: what could solve this is a lot of baboons yes okay. we need so many baboons so many baboons just, just put a lot of baboons in. keep them like going back and forth into the telepods, See what happens.
0: Where do the baboons come from?
1: We don't Where do know. The baboons go. Where do the baboons come from? Cotton Eye Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Where do baboons go when they die? <laughs> do baboons dream of baboon sheep? <laughs> <laughs> Return to the Telepodcast is a production of Silent Machine Studios, featuring music by My Silent Machine. If you enjoyed this episode like subscribe and do whatever else you usually do with podcasts i don't know thank you for listening